As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Alexis, codenamed Doc Holiday Jackson. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. It's the top of the week, which means we are diving into our weekly strange news segment. All the hits... All the weird ones that we wanted to examine, uh, give them a little bit of a, of, of a closer look, maybe. And today we're traveling around the world. We've got a bit of hidden history. We've got a Japanese mystery. We've got the, I don't know, how would you, what would you call it, Matt? The, the weather in Iowa seems to be, I don't know, a little bit dismissive because this is a big deal. Yeah, well, it's, it's weather saying i don't care who you are where you are what you think's going on what your weather person says i'm just gonna blow a hundred mile winds at you and and i don't g-a-f <laughs> text message received loud and clear yes yeah, so with all of these stories you know one thing backstage that we have been running into is the difficulty with narrowing down our choices to a single thing I even, you know, I want to pitch to you guys on air that maybe when time and interest allows, we spend a little time at the end of an episode just laundry listing stuff we didn't get to. I don't know. What do you think? We could do a sound cue. We could make it a thing. Let's just make a sixth episode that's just <laughs> listener <laughs> listener mail that hit the floor if you guys want us to. Maybe seven. Who cares? We'll just make them eight days a week. Oh, boy. Uh, nobody tell our boss that. So... You know, we didn't talk about where we want to travel first. Uh, is anybody anybody feeling particularly fired up? Uh, want to hop hop on the mic first, or we can? Uh, why don't we keep it in the U.S. and in, in the heartland of the United States? We're going to begin with a story that you likely heard about. Perhaps you lived through this event if you are out in the Midwest of the United States. This is something that happened last week. This is, uh, this is the headline of the article. It's from USA Today from August 14th, 2020. Iowans grapple with aftermath of Monday's deadly derecho, a disaster that we have never seen. 
Now, if you go through this article, it is highlighting something called a derecho storm, D-E-R-E-C-H-O. Yes, if you uh, speak Spanish or you took Spanish uh, in class at some point in your life, derecho is a word that you've likely heard. Um, it means a, a variety of things or can mean a variety of things from the right, from the center. Um, there are a couple other uh, I believe from straightforward, something like that. It sounds a bit odd to have that word when describing a storm, but let's talk about what one of these things is. What is a derecho? Let's jump to an article called What is Derecho from Forbes. Uh, this writer, Marshall Shepard, is taking a lot of information from the NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. Okay, so... A derecho, as described by the NOAA, it's a little tough to get through, but let's just let's say what it is, according to them. It is defined as a widespread, long-lived windstorm. That's pretty simple, right? Widespread, long-lived windstorm. They're typically associated with organized bands of rapidly moving thunderstorms or rainstorms, like squall lines, or a bunch of other terms uh, that... I or you probably wouldn't understand. All of these systems are classified as mesoscale convective systems. So MCS is a term you may see thrown around with a lot of these articles. So what does that actually mean? That means you're going to get winds of 75 miles per hour. Sometimes, and as in the case of this most recent derecho, there were wind gusts recorded at 112 miles per hour, which if you're imagining uh, a tornado or a hurricane, that's the kind of strength you're going to see with a, I believe it is a category three hurricane that you will see winds at that speed. Uh, intense stuff. Here's the scary thing about derechos. They come out of nowhere. When, when you're imagining okay, there's a storm coming or two storms coming that could form together to create tornadoes, right? We've got winds coming from one, one way, winds coming from the opposite direction, and as they hit, the, those, those two systems can churn together and create a tornado, and meteorologists can look at something like that and say, okay, it's likely that you're going to get tornadoes forming from the, these two storm systems converging. With a derecho... It's very different. It's much more difficult to predict. And that's what makes them so scary. That combined with the fact that, that the wind gusts can happen literally with zero warning. You will all of a sudden get wind gusts coming through of 50 to 100 miles per hour. So in order to illustrate this and what recently happened out in Iowa, before we even get to what occurred in Iowa, I want to read you a story from the NOAA and it's about a derecho that occurred in 1999 in Maine. That's in the, if you're not from the U.S., or perhaps you are in the U.S., Maine is in the northeasternmost part of our country. There's a woman named Sarah Jameson. She, at the time, in 1999, was a National Weather Service meteorologist. She was up in Maine. She was hanging out there with friends and family going camping for the 4th of July. Now, it's her and several family members, and it was very hot and humid on that day in 1999. There was a temperature high of around 90 degrees Fahrenheit, and the family was going to sleep that night, right? They spent the day like boating, swimming, doing all the things you do out on the lake. They decided they were going to go to sleep. One person was sleeping in an SUV that was parked nearby, and I'm going to read directly from the article here. As the Independence Day celebration came to an end, sleeping arrangements were made for the night at the campsite near the shore of the lake where they were staying. Sarah's mother and father would sleep on their boat near the docks. Her brother would sleep in the sports utility vehicle, and Sarah and her friends would share a tent. As the night progressed, Sarah mentioned that the, quote, air was very stagnant with no wind, making it very uncomfortable in that hot tent. Sarah and her friends were having trouble sleeping, so at about 3 a.m., she and a friend left the tent to go get some fresh air, and they noticed lightning out in the distance. Now, we're talking pretty far away out in the distance, right? They went back to the tent, zipped up the flaps because they thought, okay, there's a rainstorm coming. We're in a tent. We don't want to get soaked. In the meantime, 
Sarah's mother had also woken up, and Sarah's mother became really concerned because there's a storm approaching. She saw the amount of lightning. Something told her that she needed to act. So she left the boat to go warn Sarah and her friends, remember they're in the tent, that they need to uh, get out of that tent. So she ran about 20 to 30 yards. Now, that's not very far, 20 to 30 yards from the boat to where that tent was. And once she reached the tent and she began to yell for Sarah and her friends, you know, this is her daughter and her friends, hey, get out of this tent. The roar of the winds that were coming through were so loud that the kids couldn't hear her. Like, imagine that. Winds that are so loud going through the trees and across the, the water and the waves, it's so loud that you can't even hear your mom right outside your tent. So thankfully, once she actually got to the tent, she was able to get their attention, get them out. They went back to the SUV, the you know, a big heavy car, which is probably safer than being in a tent or on a boat in a situation like that. Almost immediately after they got into the SUV, a tree fell down right near the campsite, and then another giant tree was completely uprooted, fell onto that tent where they were, where the kids were sleeping. And it only lasted 20 minutes, I think, 30 minutes, and the storm was completely gone. There was hardly any rain that was associated. They said there were trees falling all around them, and it happened with almost zero warning. And the only reason that they were saved was because the mother had experience with something like this before, and she was aware of it. So imagine this entire scenario occurring all across Iowa, across South Dakota, across Ohio, a ton of the Midwest. That is what just happened in the United States. And there's so much other stuff occurring you know, in the world, uh, from a news standpoint, from all the headline grabbers that are out there right now, that this has kind of just occurred and then left. Hmm. So, you know, I understand just a little bit about derechos. I know that for many of us, this may have been the first time we ever heard about it, but this is a known phenomenon, correct? Like this has been around. Yes, it's it's been around. It's been recorded for hundreds of years, actually. Uh, people have been talking about this since I know the 1800s, and they've been recording instances of it. And it's uh, seasonal too, I believe. There, uh, in that there are four months, August being one, where derechos are much more likely to occur. This is, you know, when when you were first telling me about this, Matt, uh, at least on my end, I assumed it was more crazy, disastrous weather from overall climate change. But I thought the same thing about that fire tornado that just happened mm. in Northern California. Uh, yeah. So, so this is not a product of you know global warming or anything like that. This is a sneak attack by the climate that can just happen. This, I mean, this sounds to me like no pun intended, maybe pun intended. I don't know, a perfect storm kind of situation where these things are like coming together in such a way to create this larger than life. Uh, situation. Is that accurate? I mean, it's it's definitely conditions that are kind of coalescing to create this rather than just a bigger picture climate change issue. Yeah, I'm, guys, I can't speak to whether or not this has anything to do with climate change, unfortunately. <laughs> whether or not. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but But I do know that if you look at a map of the U.S. in the Midwest, there's a very large area. You can find maps of this if you if you search for it in your favorite browser. Uh, you will find maps where in the larger area, there's around one of these derechos in any given time. I think it's usually in a year. And then you get a little smaller. There's two derechos in a year. And you get even smaller. There's four, three or four over the course of um, two years, I believe. It's a bit odd the way it's kind of uh, shown there. But yes, the, these things do happen on a, a fairly frequent basis, but the amount of damage that occurred in this previous one, the one that occurred uh, last week, that's really what's putting this kind of making it newsworthy for me, at least. There were hundreds of thousands of people across the Midwest that were out of power, and there are still people right now, as we're recording this on August 17th, they are still without power because there was such intense damage done to the infrastructure. And, you know, again, like I have to stress, it's not a hurricane. 
that you can prepare for. It's not a tornado that you get. Maybe you've experienced this listening, uh, a large warning in your town, in your city, wherever you are, where you actually hear a siren and you know there's a tornado coming and you can prepare, even if it's just short term, prepare to, you know, duck and cover, if you will, but, you know, take shelter within your home or whatever building you're near. Uh, this kind of thing just, it feels like, oh, well, there's probably a storm coming. And then all of a sudden, 50 to 100 mile per hour winds are smashing you. It's really, it's really scary. So the, the amount of damage, let's go to back to this original article from USA Today. Uh, as of midday Friday, as I said, we're recording this on the 17th, just three days prior, there were still 140,000 customers in Iowa that didn't have power. Uh, there were 60,000 in Illinois that didn't have power. Again, this is like across all of these states. The state of Iowa has declared a disaster. They are hoping to get power fully restored by tomorrow as we're recording this. And there's a quote here. We, oh, by the way, I didn't even say this. Cedar Rapids is the city within Iowa that was hit the worst. And you can find other articles that are specifically talking about what happened in Lynn County and Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and I recommend you do that. If I'm not mistaken, Matt, I think they're requesting something like $4 billion in Almost aid. $4 billion. Yeah, almost $4 billion. Uh. And it, it makes total sense. You know, the other big thing to, here to talk about is that there's a lot of property damage, obviously. There's a lot of damage to infrastructure. There's also damage to, to humans that need to go to the hospital. And we're in a time when, you know, the coronavirus... And and the precautions that have to be taken for that are overriding everything else. And this only piles on. And then think about hospitals that are attempting to treat someone who has COVID-19 and then losing power. You know, hopefully there are backup systems in most of the major hospitals there, but you, you know that that can't be true for all of them. I'd like to point out one other thing here, a knock-on effect that uh, maybe people aren't thinking about just yet. Iowa is a huge agricultural state, and we're talking about millions and millions of acres of farmland in some of the most fertile soil in the world being knocked out of commission. So that is going to, um, you know, without knowing the timeline of when that rip, particular ripple hits the rest of the nation, uh, we know it's on the way. It's very true. That is... It's a scary thought. And you're absolutely right. A ton of damage to crops. Uh, it's interesting. Um, I, I was asking kind of like at the, uh, when you started this one about, you know, what is this? Like, is is it a product of climate change? Is just sort of like a perfect kind of scenario that leads to this rare event? And, and that kind of is the case. There's a really great article in National Geographic uh, about everything you ever wanted to know about what a derecho is. The way it's formed is warm air rising from the surface of the earth and then colliding with colder air in the upper atmosphere. And then that cools to its dew point. And then then uh, that's the temperature that in which water, you know, vapor condenses into drops, which causes clouds. And then the cooled air drops back to the surface where it warms up again and starts this process all over again, creating this crazy like feedback loop that just whips this up into a crazy, you know, fervor and becomes this incredibly damaging storm that, you know, while a tornado kind of blasts through an area and then sort of, you know, works itself out. This one is just this like pummeling kind of straight line of just absolute carnage that just keeps going. And I, th I believe it takes longer for it to kind of wind down. You're absolutely right, Noel. Uh, the, this is the way the Morning Call put it in another article they just released. Uh, the quote is, when you're in a derecho, you can have these winds lasting for much longer than you would see in a tornado. So the damage that can be caused by 100 miles per hour wind blowing on you for 10 minutes is going to be different than a hundred miles per hour wind blowing on you for two minutes, like with a tornado. So you can kind of picture if you've ever lived through one, or if you've seen images of them, when a tornado passes through, it is moving very, very rapidly. And depending on the F number of that tornado, the essentially the diameter of it, of how large that tornado is, you can imagine that it's going so quickly and it only has such a diameter that it's only on you. You're only experiencing the true power of that tornado for a short period. With this derecho, I mean, 10 minutes to experience that power. Um, you're, that's why 
so many buildings, so much infrastructure just gets decimated. I can't imagine. It just sounds like uh, like hell on earth. Uh, just an absolute nightmare. I and mean, I'm really not trying to make light when I bring this up, but uh, I recently rewatched the movie Twister uh, of, uh, I believe, Joel Schumacher. Was it Joel Schumacher or Jan DeBont? I always confuse them, but I really thought that that was a pretty clever movie uh, as much as it probably gets ragged on because it really does like, you know, turn weather into like a monster kind of. And that's what I think of when I when I hear the stories like this, as silly as that movie is. Um, it absolutely you know, does a decent job of showing you like this is a force that is coming for you and it feel it cares not for your feelings or, you know, your stuff. Like it's just absolutely uh, literally a force of nature and you can't stop it. That's right. We're going to continue to watch the story, watch the recovery efforts and see what occurs. Let us know if you lived through this, what you experienced. You know, you can, you, we'll tell you how to connect to us at the end of this, but just keep that in mind. We'd love to hear from you. Love to know you're okay. Um, and just what you experienced. Stay safe. Yeah, please stay safe. We're going to hear a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle. And I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, dad. Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. 
Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, and we're back with some more strange news. Uh, fellas, is it okay if I go in the middle here? I'll be the the meat in the news sandwich. Yes. Not, 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 not to imply that mine is more substantial in any way, more meaty, and you guys are in some way relegated to the lesser bread portions of the sandwich. But really, it's all all, all of the parts of the sandwich are equal. Can, really can we if, make it a meat alternative? Absolutely. What do you think? Uh, are you an impossible type guy? Are you like the Beyond or or maybe a tofu? Let's just situation? do eggplant. Oh God, I love eggplant. I actually have some eggplant in the fridge. I think I'm going to cook up for dinner in some sort of stir fry or a stew. Um, but my my story's not about any of that stuff. It's not about meat, bread, or stir fry. It's about human beings sleeping in the street. And I'm not talking about homelessness. I'm talking about mainly like gainfully employed human beings literally falling asleep in the street, specifically in Okinawa, Japan. Um, and I couldn't help but my, you know, the the, the lizard brain part of me um, that that immediately looks for like sinister uh, meaning in, in 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 seemingly benign events uh, really started kind of firing on all cylinders when I saw this story. Uh, the headline of the article that kind of set me on this path is uh, from the Mainichi, which is uh, Japan's national daily uh, paper since 1922. I, I was not familiar with this, but I found it on Reddit. Uh, and the headline is Okinawa police scramble to stop people from sleeping on road over 7,000 cases in 2019. What? Yeah. And again, when I say sleeping on the road, I mean it. Uh, folks are actually using like the curb as a pillow and it's uh, causing some real problems. People are getting run over by taxis um, there. It's just really becoming a hazard. And it's um, they even have a name for it. They refer to them as Rojone, uh, which literally translates to sleeping on the road. And it's almost like becoming this weird kind of, I don't know, it's like a cultural phenomenon. Uh, and, and it seems to be uh, at least somewhat, you know, limited to Okinawa, but that could well be just because they're the ones doing most of the reporting on it. But um, Okinawa Prefecture Police are, um, according to this article, likely the only kind of government body in Japan that is actually keeping stats on this uh, particular phenomenon. Yeah, it's um, the Florida man. It's the it's the Florida man phenomenon. Because there is more record keeping, yep. it seems like there's uh, maybe something anomalous, but one thing that startled me in Japan is it's socially acceptable to sleep in the street more so than the U.S. That's right. And I found another article from uh, several years ago that, that indicates just that. But this one is super interesting because you're, you're right, Ben, about the reporting aspect of it. But they do seem pretty baffled um, because officials are sort of like, why are people doing this? What they're, they're trying to come up with like answers. And one of them was, well, the climate is kind of warm here um, and residents are pretty chill. <laughs> Uh, but also a big uh, part of this is folks are are really into drinking uh, a lot in Okinawa. There's apparently a uh, an alcoholic beverage that is super popular and super strong. Um, that's uh, that's native to uh, Okinawa, and it is called hold on, Owamori, uh, which is an Okinawa Okinawan liqueur. Uh, that's very potent and very, very popular. Um, but yeah, there's there's some interesting uh, speculation around this. Um, but it's it's a, a lot of it has to do with people seemingly being too drunk and falling asleep in the middle of the street, some in fetal positions. Um, and that's the thing that got me is like, how have you ever been drunk enough where you would just pass out in the middle of the street? Like, I've definitely been in my cups, and I would at least find a bench or, like, mm. you know, uh, an alley or something, but in the street. Like, I'm seeing these images on this article that you can find yourself. There's a human being just laying directly in the middle of a lane of traffic. 
I think that's the that's the big difference. It looks like because there are a lot of people sleeping, you know, in public, maybe an alley, or they're waiting for the trains to resume service, but they're not sleeping out in the road. Usually, you'll see like a you'll see like an office worker who's had a night out cracking several cold ones with the yep. boys, yep. and he's leaned up against the Seven Eleven, and yeah, he might be there till morning. You know what I mean? Uh, maybe he has a spare tie in his pocket, so it looks like he went home and changed. But uh, this seems unusual in that these people are in roadways instead of pedestrian areas or yeah. sidewalks. Yeah, you're 100% right, Ben. I found an article from 2019. Uh, it was a really great kind of photo essay uh, from this particular photographer who splits his time between Warsaw and Japan uh, by the name of, oh, it's a tough one. It's like a Polish last name, Jazz Jazuk, J-A-S-Z-C-Z-U-K. Um, I'm not, uh, Paul, Paul Jasek. I'm going to go with that. Um, and he has, has made a, you know, art project, I guess, out of documenting, uh, these, these sleeping on their feet, uh, salary men. Oftentimes they are sleeping on their feet. They're literally upright holding their briefcase and their, their, their heads are slumped over. They're either leaning against like a building or like you said, a Seven Eleven or something, or one of those little traffic, like those little kind of, uh, those kind of little stone outcropping things that you'll see along pedestrian walkways, you know, and it's very, very different. Uh, they're, they're not sleeping in the actual roadway. And, you know, I put this in our little document where we keep track of the articles we're going to discuss. And I, I, I wrote, why are so many people falling asleep in the middle of the street in Okinawa, Japan? Is it the warm climate, too much partying or something more sinister? Uh, I, I have no evidence that it's something more sinister, but does this not seem like the beginning of like a Stephen King story or like some kind of like culty film where all of a sudden people start falling asleep in the middle of the street and getting run over by like cars? It seems like a good setup, good premise. I would, I would agree with you, however, with your proposition that there is something more sinister going on. Uh, and this is something that's maybe familiar to a lot of people. It's Japan's murderous working culture. Uh, we're talking for a lot of these office workers, traditionally, it's 60 hours a week easy because you are not allowed to leave, even if you're done for the day, until your the senior above you leaves. And uh, you're also, when you leave, you don't really leave, at least uh, pretty often you are required to go out like you have to go to hang out with people and go drinking or sing karaoke uh, for your career and then the thing is you don't get a breakout after that like even if your boss knows that you guys were out until 2 a.m you still have to be in the office at eight or whatever totally. and you, you still have to stay until your boss says it's time to call it a night by it's going a, to the karaoke place again. It's a vicious cycle. You're absolutely right. And 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 uh, I think the point maybe neither one of us uh, mentioned quite yet is the reason they end up having to sleep in the street in this situation a lot of times um, is that they've missed the last train. Because oftentimes folks don't live, you know, in the city. You know, it could be a long commute. And if you miss that train that goes back out to the area where you live, you're stuck. Um, but you're right. It is more socially acceptable. But I'm still really perplexed at this specifically sleeping in the middle of the road aspect of this phenomenon. People putting their heads on street curbs and actually getting killed. Like there there have been uh, deaths associated with this and, and you know. All kinds of disturbances and traffic. Matt, you've been you've been a little quiet on this one. I'm interested to see what, hear what your lizard brain does with this uh, particular story. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how much of this is actually people sleeping in the road. Um, I'm, I was looking at the article that you shared. And I was trying to find a few more things. Just situations. There's not a lot about it. There's not a lot of reporting on this. It, it's specifically out of Okinawa. It seems like, and I saw one other. A uh, little blurb on a not particularly reputable looking site. So I don't know. I'm interested to know what you found. Yeah, I I really haven't found much else referring to the act of sleeping in the road. The I guess they're calling it rojone here. Um, um, you know, I just have to agree. I have to agree with you guys that the biggest issue here is the work life that is meant to be maintained not just in okinawa uh, terrible i mean it's intense there right 
But that kind of pressure for working people, I would say, exists across the planet where yeah. you, you feel that need to both impress your you know, higher ups to be seen, to be there for functions. And right now it's perhaps a little lessened because we don't have to be physically in a lot of places, if, if especially if your superiors, whoever they are, are uh, aware of world events and dangers to your health and their health. But it is a real situation where work-life balance is a, is a tough thing to, to keep. And one thing I think that compounds it is like when I originally mentioned that having to sleep in the streets because of the train cutoff, which I believe is at 1 a.m., it's at least in the U.S., in major cities, it's relatively inexpensive to get a ride home from an Uber or something like that. But in Japan, the taxis are are going to be more expensive. Uh, Now, I'm not... Did I get an Uber? Uh, I'm not too familiar with how it works, how the Uber, the Lyft works in Japan and whether it's as ubiquitous as it is in large cities here. But yeah, uh, it's you can be SOL and it's a very debilitating uh, lifestyle over time, I would say. Like especially, and you know, what's brilliant about your point, Matt, and terrifying about your point is that it's absolutely correct. And this pattern is growing. You can, you know, you can associate it with capitalism and demonize that if you want. But the fact of the matter is that in many, many places of the world, people are working much more for less and less and less. Like go back, look at the um look at the increase in minimum wage from, you know, a five-year period, and then look at the increase in rent, and then look at the uh increase in expected off-work duties that are still work for many, many people. I, I don't know, man. I would. It makes me think of all the all the people we've seen arguing recently for like a four-hour work or sorry, a four-day work week, not sure. a four-hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's true. And just just a little bit of perspective: Japan uh, has a population of around 126 million as of 2018, and Okinawa is just a little over one million. And we only have about seven thousand of these cases reported. So it's not like it's some sort of like epidemic. Uh, not to abuse that term uh, during an actual. Uh, pandemic. Um, but yeah, it's, I still thought it was interesting. It, it made me, uh, I don't know, it made me give it a second look. So uh, I, I, I thought I, I thought I'd bring that one out for today. I don't really have much else to add, but uh, I, I'm interested to see if if anything uh, else comes of this, if these numbers start to go up or, or taper off or I don't know. I'm also interested to all your points about the work week, how quarantine has affected that culture in Japan. You know, like are, are, are people working from home in Japan, as much as we are here, are people expected to return back to the office because of that very militaristic uh, attitude towards, you know, uh, office life and that uh, absolutely non-existent work-life balance? Um, any, I don't know that we have a whole lot of Japanese listeners, but if anyone spent time there or has family there, uh, let us know. I, I'd, I'd be very interested to, to know. Ben, have you seen anything about how, how they're dealing with this aspect of quarantine? Uh, yeah. So Japan, like many, many other countries, uh, did a realistically fantastic job addressing the spread of COVID-19. And because of, again, you know, we're outsiders to this culture. We've seen it, we've read about it, but we are not Japanese, nor have, as far as I know, any of us lived there for an extended time. But you'll see a lot of reporting especially around June, maybe April, uh, about how the pandemic actually provided this fundamental shift in Japanese work culture. Specifically, I'm thinking of the reports that say more than 60% of Japanese workers who worked from home during COVID now say they want to keep doing that after the pandemic has passed. And honestly, there are probably a lot of people in Europe, in other parts of Asia, in North and South America, who thought the same thing. You know what I mean? Like, just imagine all the time you're saving on a commute if you work from home. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can picture, I can, I'm experiencing it firsthand. <laughs> yeah, a million percent. Um, you know, here the last thing I just want to say, guys, 
I am going back to your thoughts on whether this was something creepy happening, something bigger at play. I'm imagining the cordyceps fungus and the way it acts on ants and how this could be for humans. And what if there was some kind of fungal infection that was occurring? I'm not, I don't believe this, but what if there was some kind of fungus that was affecting humans that was causing us all to go out into the streets and lay down and go to sleep because Ooh. it would spread more fungus Via uh, automobile, right? That's via the, oh, yeah. via <laughs> just splattering. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. You know, what's funny. It made me think of this film, uh, Suicide Club. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but it's about this uh, spate of very inexplicable suicides um, in, in Japan. Uh, or I forget if it's Japanese or Korean film now that I'm, now I'm thinking about it. But like schoolgirls jumping in front of uh, subway trains and things like that, like holding hands. Like right. that, that's the creep level that this made me uh, think of. I have I have one thing. Uh, I know we keep saying we're going to move on, but I have I have one thing here that this reminded me of. My first question was actually going to be: I had assumed it would be the um, dangerous work culture and the traditional expectations, but my first question was going to be about the age of the people who were found asleep in the road, because Okinawa has a very very rare distinction. It's one of the few places in the world known as what's called a blue zone. A blue zone, and you can read some great uh, articles or videos about this from HowStuffWorks.com. can't remember if I made the video on this one, but a blue zone, anyway, is a place in the world where people have a much, much higher chance of becoming centenarians and uh, retaining their mental and physical health. People tend to live longer in blue zones for a number of reasons that are pretty well understood, but maybe not fully explained. So I was wondering, I remembered when you said this, remember the Okinawa is one of those rare blue zones. And I was thinking, are the people falling asleep because they're overworked and maybe overserved? Or are they falling asleep because, you know, they're in their hundreds? But looking at the photos you're showing, you're showing us here, no, it looks like these are mostly middle-aged and maybe even younger people, would you say? Yeah, it seems like mainly. There's, I've seen a few uh, folks who looked maybe a little bit older, but not 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 to that degree. And um, I, there's an interesting stat here. Basically, all that this has led to is uh, this kind of you know discussion about how do we uh, prevent this phenomenon, but also uh, a, a pretty reasonable fine. Um, 50,000 yen, which is around $470. And I mean, there's a ton of these pictures on Instagram. There's videos. Uh, there have been examples of women um, taking off their clothes. Uh, and the article can, you know, sort of speculates that they think they're home. They think they've gotten home. Um, so it does appear that alcohol is a big part of this, but absolutely, Ben. I mean, this uh, crushing work situation really is uh, has to be the culprit but i don't know let's keep an eye on this one and there you have it noel uh i i think you've made a great call to action for everyone in japan who is listening to the show we do have a few of our fellow listeners located there uh let us know you know because we're half a world away so it can sometimes be tough to tell whether this is a new phenomenon or whether it's a new report on an existing phenomenon. You know what I mean? And with that, we're going to pause. We're going to return to the U.S. in our next segment, but maybe not in a way you were expecting. What are we talking about? Uh, we'll tell you if everyone is still awake after this commercial break. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, huh? oh. run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. 
Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's Dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have returned. This is a story about hidden history. I'm very excited about this. I want to see what you guys think. We all remember the famous lost colony of Roanoke, right? It's it's conspiracy lore. It's uh it's not quite the top tier stuff like JFK or Roswell or Bigfoot, but it's I pretty was, close. Yeah, I would say it's pretty well known, you know, even outside of the US. So here is the uh quick and dirty, without going too deep into it. I'm sure we've done some sort of episode that touched on this in the past, whether it was on video or audio, but this is one of North America's oldest unsolved mysteries. In August of 1587, a group of a little more than 100 settlers arrived on Roanoke Island. These were English settlers. They were off the coast of what is today known as North Carolina. They were having a tough time. They were not prepared for the hardship. You know, this was a new land, and uh, they quickly, quickly learned the hard way that this would be a difficult existence. Later in the year, still in 1587, they sent John White, the governor of their colony, back to England to get more supplies. But as he arrived in Europe, 
a huge war broke out between England and Spain. As they say in Seinfeld, yada, 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 every available ship has to confront the Spanish Armada. John White, long story short, doesn't get back to Roanoke until 1590. He's left his wife and his daughter there, his infant granddaughter. He finds no trace, according to the story, of the colony, no trace of those English settlers, doesn't really have any clues about what happened, except for one thing, one word carved into a tree. I think we all know what that word is, right? Was it red drum? (laughs) It was close. It was close. Yeah. It was Croatoan. (laughs) Yes, yes. And this this single mystery became the focus point of so many investigations ranging from serious academic endeavors to maybe stuff a little more on the sensationalistic side. I think we grew up, you know, hearing these various stories and allegations, some of which ended up being true. But just recently... In the Virginian pilot, journalist Jeff Hampton has spoken with an author named Scott Dawson. Scott Dawson is the creator of a book that was published just this past June called The Lost Colony in Hatteras Island. He has uh, he has correlated the work of archaeologists, historians, botanists, geologists, and other people who have been digging in this area for more than a decade And according to him, the mystery has been solved. He says they, meaning the colonists in question, were never lost. Instead, he says, it was made up and the mystery is over. He believes that all the records he's found, all the artifacts that people have uh, excavated from these various sites, two digs in particular— prove that the colonists ultimately, to survive, joined up with the local Native American community there in the 16th century. And his evidence is pretty solid. Uh, Some people might say that this is a, a boring answer, but it's something that I think we talked about, at least in speculative terms, in our earlier episodes on this. They they found so many things that were indicative of a mix of Native American and English communities. They found parts of swords and guns in the same layer of soil as Indian pottery and arrowheads, and these are not spaced far enough away uh, for there to be a plausible argument that uh, they were you know, left at different times. According to Henry Wright, an anthropology professor at the University of Michigan and an expert on Native history, in a spot the size of two parking spaces, they could find as many as 10,000 different pieces and artifacts. So, So they left Roanoke Island with the Croatan community, like I said, Matt, the, the word Croatan that was carved there. And they settled on nearby Hatteras Island and the communities assimilated. This is something that, you know, I personally attest happens a lot in the eastern seaboard of early North America. And then they lived there for generations. It wasn't until more than 100 years later, an explorer named John Lawson found what he thought was a native community, which basically was a native community, and he remarked that it was odd to him that members of the community had blue eyes, and some even told him, this is from his contemporaneous account, that they had ancestors who could, quote, speak out of a book, a.k.a. literacy. Fascinating. It is fascinating. Um, So basically, they abandoned the site? Is that the idea? And that they just kind of assimilated with these native people? Yeah, yeah. There was no sign of distress when Governor White returned three years later to the site. Uh, There were no, like, signs of violence. There were signs of privation, right, and starvation, very difficult times. But if you look at it, Basically, what they did was they tried to helpfully indicate what happened to them. 
by literally making a sign. Croata means we went with these people. And, uh, you know, this mystery would have been solved centuries ago by Governor White himself had not a bad storm and then unrest, domestic unrest, pretty much mutiny on his ship, prevented him from reaching that second island. So eventually he gave up and he just went back to England, leaving the mystery unsolved. And people have been digging for it ever since. Uh, So I think that we had in the past, again, speculated about this, but we didn't have uh, full proof, right? And for centuries, one of the theories was that the native population had attacked the people of this colony at Roanoke Island. But it appears that the Croatan community was pretty down with the English settlers. They liked that they had guns and armor and the colony that was run by Governor White also welcomed the Croatans because uh, they were much better than another community in the area, the Sikotans, who had uh, attacked and killed one of the English colonists. That's what I remember from our episode earlier this year. It was um, speculation on those two tribes that were opposing, I believe, mm -hmm. or the the groups, indigenous Mm -hmm. groups. because in the past, Ben, wasn't, I seem to remember, and I don't know if this is correct, something about the, what is the group? The Seco, Seco Tens? Yeah. They were, weren't they, or at least isn't it thought that that group was very aggressive and yes. the Croatans were maybe a little more peaceful or had even been, um, they were, ens- they were enslaved, I want to say. The Croatans were enslaved by the Sikotans at some point, and then the English actually helped the Croatoans. Mm. It's been a while, but but there, the story that we that was, I guess, hypothesized at the time when we made that episode, it sounds like we're pretty much finding out that it's true. Yeah, yeah. It turns out that the historical mystery has probably been solved at least according to Dawson, but also uh, going back to some of our previous examinations of forensic DNA research, uh, we're, we're receiving and have been receiving regular revelations that prove, if you think about it, that the untold history of early North America is a history that is alive. And it is in some of us today. And I especially love the point that Dawson makes when he says the mystery is solved. He seems somewhat offended. He says, quote, you're robbing an entire nation of people of their history by pretending Croatan is a mystery on a tree. These were people that mattered a lot. Hmm. And it makes you think, you know, I mean, did you guys grow up with this mystery as well? I did, but I have to be completely candid. I absolutely conflated it with Jamestown in my head. It was another like, you know, colony, misery, mystery kind of situation. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I definitely, definitely remember Roanoke and Jamestown, but just uh, my adult brain is kind of mushing them together, which I know a lot of history buffs out there are going to say that is inexcusable, sir. But that's where I am. Yeah, it's been around with me for a long time. It it always conjures images of a ghost town or, you know, that mass disappearance. It really stands, at least for me, as the example of a mass disappearance event. And there aren't many of them in, in the history of the world where just an entire town, an entire city or area or group just is gone. Um, and, you know, admittedly, it has a lot to do with the, num- the number of people traveling to and from Roanoke who are actually writing down, uh, recording history, right? Um, in some way that would be understood and kept and passed down by at least largely English-speaking people who invaded and <laughs> came over to these lands. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always been, the image is always conjured in my mind of like mists, somewhere there where the colony of Roanoke once stood and just the remnants of 
some longhouses or or something or some some type of homes that were built by colonists and perhaps by indigenous peoples. And it makes it makes perfect sense to attempt to assimilate, right? You're a stranger in a strange land. You may not be able to grow the crops to which you are accustomed. You are not familiar with the flora nor the fauna, right? Uh, you don't know what's poisonous. There's that. That's always a, a surprise. Who would who would imagine that mushroom risotto could kill you? Uh, it, it more than makes sense. It does not make sense to avoid those people who know what they're doing and have, you know, uh, have ancestry dating back thousands of years there. And this put me in a rabbit hole that we don't have time to discuss today, but uh, I, I've been reading, um, I've been reading more and more about DNA research into early populations of uh, people. And this was on my mind because of a previous episode that we did very recently, the one in which we explore when the human species actually reached North and South America. And this, you know, it sounds like they're two very different stories, but they're similar in that we still have uh, myth-making going on, and we still have mysteries that we insist on echoing, despite the fact that we have the technological tools to solve them. It's just humanity can be very, very stubborn when the truth of something doesn't match the narrative with which we are all so comfortable. So, again, it's it's relatively rare for us to be able to do this, but uh, check one off the box. There is one uh, one strange story that has been solved. And I know we just do one story a, a day, but I wanted to share a, a funny listener mail I saw earlier today with you guys. Or not oh, listener man. mail. Someone joined Here's Where It Gets Crazy on Facebook. They sent us a message and they said they're not great with puns, but they said they, they, they told us a joke. I think we might enjoy it. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Three conspiracy theorists walk into a bar. You can't tell me that's a coincidence. <laughs> great. Uh, I love it. What uh, a great way to wrap up. That's awesome. Uh, and those are so ephemeral, man. Once you click accept, they disappear. So I'm glad that you like at least grabbed a screenshot or, or a mental uh, snapshot of that. Some of them are really fun. And this is our show for today. Everybody in the path of derechos, in the path of fire natos, please be safe out there. Everybody in Okinawa, especially Okinawa, let us know what's going on. Are pe- how many people are really falling asleep in roadways and why do you think they are? And of course, if you have a theory on the disappearance of anyone from the crew of the Mary Celeste, which I think is also solved, by the way, uh, to the Anasazi tribe in the late 1200s, or if you disagree with Scott Dawson about what happened to the colony on Roanoke Island, we want to hear from you. You can find us. We're all over the internet. It's hard not to find us at this point. Like, I, I don't know if we ever told anyone on air, but back in the day, uh, we had a lot of pressure internally to start a Pinterest, which looking back just feels <laughs> so weird. Do you remember that? It's never too late to start a <laughs> Pinterest. Do people even still Pinterest anymore? Is that of course. A, a valid uh, social media platform? <laughs> I still don't understand what it even is, guys. Can someone explain to me? (laughs) Let us know what Pinterest is. Pin things. What kinds of things and why? Uh, There's, hey, we can't disrespect our our Pinters. I'm not doing that. I just want to understand. I just want to understand. Help me understand. Are they called Pinters? Are they Tresters? Well, let us know. Let us know uh, what's on your Pinterest vision board. Like we always say, uh, we do want to hear from you. You are the most important part of this show. Uh, We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Not just as a show, but as individuals. Yes, as a show, we are Conspiracy Stuff or Conspiracy Stuff Show if you're on Instagram. If you want to find Noel, his personal Instagram is... Oh my gosh, Matt, what a throw. It's at how now Noel Brown on, on the Instagrams where I lurk. Uh, and that's pretty much it. I have a Twitter. It's embryonical or something like that. And I don't really tweet. I'm more of a lurker there. And Benjamin Bolin? Yes. If you would like to uh, 
see some weird things, then visit me on Instagram where I am at Ben Bolin. Uh, if you are a Twitter person, then you can follow me on Twitter at Ben Bolin HSW. What about you, Matt Frederick? Oh, I am busy starting my Pinterest account, but I will get back to you. No, I'm I'm on Instagram, Matt Frederick underscore iHeart. It's the longest one you'll ha- you'll have, and there will be no posts, but you can still find it. But what happens if people hate social media? What happens for everyone who's listened to our previous episodes on social media and big data and why why everything is terrible? What what could they do? What if they just want to give us a phone call, guys? You can always give us a call. Tell us about the Reader's Digest article you recently read that was all about how the internet is spying on you and your phone and your car and your Alexa and all the other things. Uh, Tell us about that Reader's Digest article because I just read it because I happened to drop by my folks place and they had it and I got to talk conspiracies with my parents and it was totally fine and cool. Uh, So tell us about that. Tell us about all the other stuff we talked about today. Give us a call. Our number is 1-833-STDWITK. <laughs> you can leave a message. We will hear it, and you may end up on one of our listener mail episodes. If you don't want to do that, then guess what? You can still reach us. We have an email address. It is conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.